This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program on the Wednesday edition of the program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is the Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to answering your phone calls and taking your Bible questions or life questions, anything and everything that's on your heart. I'd love to help. All you have to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app and send your questions to us that way. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just push the Call Now banner on your screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Our main number one more time is 340-9585. Thanks for tuning in. We've got a busy day today. Um, Wednesday is our midweek Bible study, and I'm actually getting started in Genesis. I actually started with an introduction last week. But we're going to do the first five verses of the book of Genesis uh, tonight. Uh, You can watch that live stream at calvarysa.com. And then, of course, tomorrow Paula will be live in studio with me on the day day edition of the program. Well, let's get to some questions that have already been sent while we wait for your phone calls. Reggie says, Pastor, on Matthew 6, 13 and 14, says, We will not be forgiven if we don't forgive others. Can we lose our salvation if we refuse to forgive? Uh, Reggie, a couple of things. First, um, if you're really born again, you can't lose what God has given you and guaranteed. That's important. But I don't want to minimize the import of what Jesus said. This is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, as you know, Reggie is sort of raising the stakes. Jews, and, and this is a very... Jewish message, by the way. And and if we lose that context, we lose the value. Uh, Jesus is raising the stakes. Now, remember, Jews felt that because they had the law, or by trying to keep the law, they would have eternal life. And Jesus is sort of raising the stakes. It starts in Matthew chapter 5, goes through 6, and through part of chapter 7. And Jesus is saying, if you think you can be this good... Let me raise the stakes. He says all the time, you have heard that it was written, but I say unto you. And then he goes beyond the letter of the law to the spirit behind the law. And of course, every single person listening to that message should say, I can't possibly do that. And Jesus then would have been able to say, that's why I've come, that you might find a righteousness that comes by faith. So having said that with the background, Reggie, I think what is going on in the verses that you talked about is that Jesus is saying that for a believer, forgiveness is assumed. Forgiveness is assumed. Obedience is another thing assumed in many of Paul's letters and James' letters and in the other epistles. Um, Forgiveness is assumed if we are real believers having been forgiven by God of so much, then what Jesus is saying here, here's the spirit behind the law. How could you possibly withhold forgiveness from somebody else? And of course, this would be a a foreign message to Jewish ears. 
But Reggie, for you and for me as born-again believers, this should not be a foreign message at all. This should be something that we strive to do every day. Jesus said, if you bring your gift to the altar and find that your brother has something against you, then leave your gift and go settle things with your brother. Well, the same thing would be true if a brother came to you, somebody who's hurt you or betrays you, and they come to you and say, would you please forgive me? Then forgiveness for believers assumed, and we always need to be ready to forgive, Reggie. We need to be eager to forgive. And I know how difficult this is for people. But until you are walking in the freedom of having forgiven other people, you're going to be bound. And the enemy's going to have a, a foothold. You know, Reggie, in my life personally, and when I got saved, there was a lot of people who did bad things to me. One of the first lessons the Lord taught me Now, believe me, nothing that anybody did to me was as bad as what I'd done to God. But God gave me the gift of being able to forgive from the beginning. And I always do that in light of the fact that I've hurt God far more than anybody's hurt me. And I can honestly tell you, as I sit here on this February day in 2020... I can sit here and say there isn't a single person in this world that I hold unforgiveness toward. And believe me, especially as a pastor, my heart has been ripped out and stomped on, Reggie. But if you're walking with Jesus, remember when Peter got down on his face in the boat after the miraculous catch of fish and said, he he said, depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. He saw Jesus' holiness. He saw his majesty, his power. But he also saw his own wickedness. And to withhold forgiveness is to be unwilling to look at our own wickedness. So can you lose your salvation? Not if you have it. Jesus is the author and the finisher of your faith. But if you are a man, Reggie, or anybody in this audience, man or woman, who's walking through this life professing faith in Christ and unwilling to forgive others, holding grudges, then you need to examine your heart. Paul says to do it daily to see whether or not you're in the faith. So we won't lose our salvation. But remember, the assumption, and this is coming from Jesus himself, the assumption, Reggie, is that if we believers, we will forgive. hope that makes sense to you, Reggie. Thank you for the question. Here is a question from John that fits right into my Bible study tonight. Pastor Ron, what is your view on a literal six-day creation, or is it creation over a wide span of time? John, in my study last Wednesday night in Genesis, just sort of the introduction, I went over this in detail. Tonight I'm going to touch on it uh, more briefly. Um, but but the Hebrew word is yom, Y-O-W-M, is how we would spell it using the English alphabet. Uh, and it means a 24-hour day. It's not used in this context in any other sense. So uh, my view is that the morning and the evening of the first day. Uh, let me change it. The evening and the morning, day one. The evening and the morning, day two. Evening and the morning, day three. And on and on through six days. Um, it's as though the Holy Spirit is going out of his way to say, it's a 24-hour day, the evening and the morning. Remember, a Jewish day began at sunset or at dusk. So that would be when, uh, for instance, the Sabbath would begin and what we would say is Friday evening around 6. But that would be the beginning of Saturday for them. The evening and the morning. A 24-hour day. And um, John, I I, I can't tell you how important I think this is. Now, I know there are people who hold the different uh, views who are saved. But I can't tell you how important this is in terms of bearing fruit in our walk with the Lord by taking Jesus at his word. So I feel more strongly than I can communicate 
that, that we were created, everything that we have was created in a literal six-day, 24-hour-a-day time frame. And what's the big deal? Jesus could do it in six minutes or six seconds if he wanted to. But he did it in six days. Um, there is no biblical warrant whatsoever for adopting a view that says, well, there were big ages. I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit again tonight. Um, or epics is, is the word that's used uh, theologically. Um, there's just no warrant for that. And so uh, I very, very strongly hold to a literal six-day creation as opposed to any other of the theories that, frankly, are silly. And whenever I say that, it's not being demeaning. It's just, I say silly because it always involves Christians trying to incorporate um, the Genesis kind of creation into a world where our scientists tell us that it's millions or even billions of years old. We don't need to make that compromise. We don't need to apologize for believing the first four words of the Bible. In the beginning, God, if you believe those four words, then the rest of the Bible is simple. So that's very, very uh, important. Thank you for the question. Here is a question from Kevin. Uh, Can you tell me practically what it means to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added unto you? Um, Kevin, again, this is the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew chapter 6. And Jesus is just saying, okay, here's the way to find uh, heaven. Here's the way to find peace with God, to enjoy uh, fellowship with God. Uh, Put Jesus as your priority over anything, everything, and everyone in this world. Seek first Jesus, his kingdom. It's a kingdom on earth. The kingdom is within you, Jesus says. When we're putting him first, when we're doing what he wants instead of what we want, Uh, Well, when we're seeking his kingdom and his righteousness, we want to be with him. Righteousness simply means right standing. Then Jesus says, all the other things that we worry about in this world, you know, what are we going to eat and uh, how are we going to survive and how are we going to have fun? All those other things. Jesus said, uh, all the things that we need to be happy, all the things that we need to be joyful, those things will be given to us by the Lord. Now, they won't necessarily be the things that you think you needed to be happy. But when you receive them, when you put Jesus first in your life, Kevin, then your life is going to be so full and so rich that you won't even be able to imagine it. But you've got to make the decision to put Jesus first and foremost. That means, and you ask for practical, so I'm going to give you practical. That means you got to love Jesus more than you love anybody else. I love Paula with all my heart. I love Jesus infinitely more. And that's a good thing for Paula. Um, There's a lot of things that I'm interested in, things that I really, really love in this world. But when anything comes ahead of Jesus, then I'm getting ripped off because I'm taking that thing that I put ahead of Jesus and making it almost an idol in my life. So if you really want the keys to the kingdom, just be with Jesus. I know I say that a lot, Kevin, on this program. You think I say it a lot in the program. You should be here in church. Um, Just be with Jesus. You're going to find that he's going to walk you into things. We had a precious phone call uh, yesterday from a lady uh, named Maria who's looking for a husband. And the way to find a husband for her is to seek Jesus and his righteousness first. And Jesus will take her by the hand, walk her through this life. One day she's going to look up and there's going to be the man that Jesus can finally trust to love her the way Jesus wants her to be loved. And there's no area of your life that isn't better with Jesus, isn't richer and fuller with Jesus than it would be without him. So it's a simple solution It's just not easy for us to do, Kevin, because our minds and our thoughts are always on other things. Jesus first and always. Thank you for the question. 
340-9585. Going through questions fast, so we'd love your live calls. Ben says, do preterists believe that Jesus came back in 70 A.D.? If not, how can they claim prophecy has already been fulfilled? Ben, I don't think all preterists, in fact, I don't think most preterists believe that Jesus returned in 70 A.D. Um, I think what their position would be is that all prophecy was fulfilled literally in time and space in 70 A.D. That would mean the only prophecy yet to be fulfilled would be Jesus' second coming. Now, they're wrong, and this is a, 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 a doctrine that, that makes no sense at all. I mean, think about this. If all prophecy was fulfilled in 70 A.D., well, then what do you do with all the prophecies that were not fulfilled? Uh, it's just impossible to understand. And yet, they do claim that 70 A.D. was the fulfillment of all prophecy, and we don't need to look for anything else except, I think, the standard preterist line be the return of Jesus. And that's going to come. Nobody knows. But but clearly, all prophecy has not been fulfilled, um, Ben, and I wouldn't spend a whole bunch of time worrying about what preterists believe. Um, Romans says to be wise about that which is good and simple about that which is evil. I'm not saying preterists are evil, but I am saying that the uh, preterist position um, has really evil consequences. It really does. Thank you for the question. Let's go to our first phone call today from Johnson City. Our friend Wes on line one. Wes, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hello, Pastor Ron. Hello, can you hear me? I can hear you fine, Wes. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, I've been on uh, social media, and there's been a lot of talk discussion about um, the dispensations, that uh, the church is uh, uh, Roman Philippian. You're breaking up. You're breaking up really, really bad. Yeah. Wes, you're breaking up so bad we can't hear you. Can I ask you to call back? Please, I, I love your question. You always have good ones. I'll take a question, and then maybe you can hang up, and we'll have you call right back. For the rest of you, 340-9585, here's a question that I could take. It's from Trey. He says, does Isaiah 53 guarantee physical healing? Trey, Isaiah 53, by his wounds or stripes we are healed, says nothing whatsoever about physical healing. Nothing at all. We hear, we see the word we're healed and we think, well, that's got to be physical healing. Uh, in Peter, uh, I'm going to be in, in First Peter 2 on, on Friday night. Um, uh, Peter makes it clear that the fulfillment of that prophecy has nothing to do with physical healing. It has everything to do with the healing from sin, the consequences of, the punishment of sin. And, uh, you know, people, well, you know, it makes provision, Isaiah 53 makes provision, the atonement makes provision for healing. It does not. Now, God still heals sometimes. But all you have to do, Trey, is look around and you'll see far more people, good Christians, faithful Christians, far, far more who don't get healed than who do. So this isn't a matter of faith. This isn't naming it and claiming it. This is simply a bad exegesis of the passage. So it doesn't promise physical healing. The atonement doesn't say anything about physical healing. Uh, what the atonement does is cleanses us from all sin and frees us from the punishment of sin. All we have to do is believe in him and we will all be healed from the disease that separates us from God. But no, uh, there is no promise of physical healing in Isaiah 53 nor in the atonement. And Again, I know there are people who say, well, you know, I know it's really about sin, but, but the atonement makes provision for physical healing. 
Uh, it does not. It says nothing whatsoever about physical healing. And if we'd understand that, then we could appreciate, we could grow to appreciate more what the focus of the passage is. I love the fact that sometimes God heals. I wish he healed all the time, but he doesn't. The Apostle Paul is our best witness. He pleaded with God three times. I don't think anybody's going to quibble with Paul's faith. But he pled three times with his Lord to take this thorn in the flesh, this painful physical affliction from him. And God said, no, my grace is sufficient. We see Epaphras and Timothy and others who struggle with physical ailments. They didn't get healed. So physical healing, the atonement, incompatible. Healing is a gift that God gives and he gives it as he wills and sometimes we get to enjoy it. So I hope that makes sense to you. Let's see if we've got Wes back. No. No, we don't have Wes back. Okay, Wes, hope, hopefully you can call back. Uh, Jeremy. Jeremy says, Pastor Ron, I have a family member whose pastor acts like he's drunk on stage. He says it's the Holy Spirit. Can I have your thoughts? Um, Jeremy, that pastor is is really close to blasphemy. Um, being drunk in the spirit, and we've all heard this nonsense, um, has nothing whatsoever to do with a gift from God. That's just a man who has either been deceived or is himself a deceiver. I don't know his heart, can't judge him, but one of the two things is true. And it's easy to get swept up into a, a big thing that's going on with lots of people in the church. Um, but a pastor has no excuse. We're to be workmen rightly dividing the word of God. We're not up there to put on a show. We're not up there to, to, to make a spectacle of ourselves. We're up there to honor God. And the pulpit is a very, very, very sacred place, Jeremy. And um, if you have any influence on your family member, uh, tell him he needs to get a new church because that is a church that is way, way out of balance and is actually harmful. Can you imagine acting like you're drunk on stage, slurring your words, falling down, uh, and blaming it on God? It's not, and it is a tragedy that those things um, take place. You know, Jeremy, over the years, I've been saved now for 29 years, and I've seen um, so many different things um, through the church. The, there was a holy, so supposedly holy laughter Phenomenon, the Toronto blessing, and and everybody would just start talking, and 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 then they just break out laughing, and then they'd fall down laughing, and suddenly that was the Holy Spirit. It wasn't. I've seen people barking like dogs and blaming it on the Holy Spirit. I've seen uh, things like gold dust supposedly falling, or teeth being filled with gold fillings, uh, feathers falling from the rafters. Um, all of those things, none of it is real. None of it is of God. And certainly, this whole concept of being drunk uh, in the spirit is of the enemy. Uh, it's just carnal, it's flesh, or it's the devil. It's certainly not God. It doesn't have anything to do with the Lord. Okay, we are in our last two minutes of this program, uh, of the half, this half of the program. Um, Marcus says, what is the best way to teach high school age kids the Bible in church? I'm struggling to be effective with kids. You know, Marcus, I think the best way to do it is just to teach it line by line. Teach it in context. Teach it line by line. And that way you're doing your part. The Holy Spirit, I promise you, will do His. We've been doing it this way now. Our church is 20, in May will be 25 years old. And we've been doing that from toddler kids. Now, there's different things that we do with them. And certainly we've got differing attention spans. But we teach the Bible verse by verse. And when we teach the Bible verse by verse, um, the Spirit of God works through the Word of God. It's that simple. 
I can tell Bible stories. I can tell jokes. I can have puppets. I can do all kinds of things. But honestly, we've raised generations now of kids who know the Bible. You should come to one of our chapel services and see the attention that's given to the Bible being taught or come to our Bible class in our school. Regardless whether it's the younger kids or the older kids, they get it because they've been taught. That's the best way to be effective because God's Spirit is working with you. We've got 30 minutes left in the program, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. This is the Word to Stand On for Life. We'll be back in two minutes. If you have questions about the Bible, you can send them to Pastor Ron and he'll answer them on the air or reply directly to you. Email your questions to PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. Back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the program. Um, Before I get to questions or waiting on phone calls, uh, our producer at the studio let us know that we're having a lot of um, hiccups in the system, so we apologize for that. Uh, I'm assuming that that we're coming through clear, but uh, it's annoying, so we're doing the best that we can to deal with it. So thank you for your patience. Here is our first question for this half of the program. It's from Jack. He wants to know if I recommend Wayne Gruden for systematic theology. Uh, Jack, I'm going to give you an ambiguous answer, yes and no. Um, uh, His systematic theology uh, is pretty good, um, but at the same time, he is a hardcore Calvinist, and and uh, you've got to be discerning enough to sort of to to get rid of all of that. The, the problem with his systematic theology is that that he he looks at um, his doctrine through the lens of a Calvinist instead of letting the Bible form his systematic theology. Uh, he's developed a systematic theology that he sees everything through. So uh, I, I, I wouldn't recommend him unless you're really mature in your faith and, and have a, a great discernment. But if you do, yeah, there's a lot of stuff he has that's pretty valuable. Thank you for the question. I think we got Wes back from Johnson City. Wes, thanks for calling back. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. Yeah, I was at a low spot there at Hamilton Pole Road. Uh, okay. Gorgeous out here, and I lost my service. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, it's great. Wayne, we got a bunch of rain last night. Praise God. Yeah. God is good. Listen, uh, could you comment on dispensationalism? Uh, I've been hearing a lot of uh, talk a lot of, on uh, social media about the different dispensations in regards to the Bible being written to the church uh, and that apostle Paul is our apostle and some of it's written, some of the Bible's written to the church, some is written to the Jews, some are is written to Israel. Could you just comment on that, please? Yeah, I, I can, Wes. Um, we, we are, I am a dispensationalist, but I think what you're encountering online probably is what's called hyper-dispensationalism, and it has become, um, uh, I don't know why, but it's become pretty popular um, online and people were asking about it. I get questions about it uh, all the time. Um, hyperdispensationalism is 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 way out of balance, and anything out of balance loses its value. So here's what dispensationalism is. Dispensationalism dispensationalism is simply acknowledging that God works different ways at different times or through different people. Uh, as we go throughout the course of history. Now, I, I would recognize seven dispensations. Um, a hyper-dispensationalist would recognize more than that just in the book of Acts alone. So um, you, you, you've got to be balanced in, in your approach to, to Scripture. Um, we know, for example, that, that um, uh, God dealt with the Jews um, through the law. 
That was the dispensation of law. We know that he deals with us in grace, the dispensation of grace, uh, the new covenant that Jesus promised. Um, we know that he dealt with Abraham in terms of a relationship differently than he dealt with, with others later. We know that before, uh, in his relationship with Adam and Eve, there was a different dispensation. So um, dispensationalism is, in my opinion, the only way to really and truly understand the Bible and keep things in context. Here's the problem, Wes, if you're not a dispensationalist. Um, you'll take an Old Testament passage. Um, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to, to prosper you, plan not to harm you, but to prosper you, uh, to give you a hope and a promise. And, and if you read that and don't understand to whom and why God is giving him that promise, then we automatically understand, okay, God's going to give me a hope and a future. Now, again, we do have a hope and a future, but that hope and future is explained to us under the new covenant. Um, so we take a passage like that, it doesn't apply to the church, it doesn't apply to us individually as Christians as it was intended. That was the time when Jeremiah wrote that, when Jeremiah was prophesying of a complete uh, and, and utter destruction of the city of Jerusalem. And and Jeremiah, the prophet to whom God was speaking, was was really discouraged, depressed even, because uh, to him it would look like, well, God wasn't keeping his promises and God reminds him, don't worry, Jeremiah, I know the plans I have for you. And that's collective you, it's Israel. And, and his plan is always for their good. So the value of dispensationalism is to read the Bible in context. I'll give you another example. Um, the Ten Commandments. Um, um, if, if we think God is still keeping us under the Ten Commandments, under the law, um, then we misunderstand completely our relationship with Christ. We've been freed from the law. Jesus fulfilled the law because we couldn't. And I know so many Christians that struggle with, well, I've got to keep the law, i got to do it. And, and, and you don't. We've been freed from the law. So um, I am a dispensationalist. I think it's the only way that you can truly understand uh, Scripture uh, in its context, understanding what the author intended to say. Uh, and get the meaning of it. But if you lose the balance, like the hyper-dispensationalists do, then um, it, it's like uh, seeing the devil everywhere. You know, you just, the, the details, and, and it's simply not uh, an effective way to, to look at our Bibles. Just read the Bible. Uh, from from Jesus' ascension into heaven until he comes back, he's still dealing with us in grace. There's still one dispensation to come in the Great Tribulation. God will deal with the people in judgment. But until that time, then God's dealing with us in grace under the terms of the New Covenant. And all we need to do is remember that's why Paul could say, it is for freedom you've been set free when he was writing to the, to the uh, um, churches in the province of Galatia. You know, Wes, one thing I would recommend for you is to uh, get a Schofield study Bible. C.I. Schofield was a guy who was used by the Lord to advance dispensationalism, uh, to popularize it in these last days. Uh, you know, God told Daniel, knowledge will increase in the end, and I think this is part of it. Now, C.I. Schofield's not perfect. Um, he was a guy that promoted the gap theory, which I think is awful. But uh, his his uh, Schofield Study Bible is really, really a, a, a viable contribution to understanding uh, what the Bible says. And it's not too much um, in terms of commentary, um, but it, but it's it's really good. So uh, I have a Schofield Study Bible at home. I used to use it all the time. Uh, and I recommend it highly. Good question, Wes. Thank you very, very much. Be really careful of those online discussions. You may remember, Wes, we have some people that call here from time to time who are hyper-dispensationalists. Uh, um, there's a guy named Les Feldick who is really popular uh, online, and, and uh, uh, he's a hyper-dispensationalist. And there are some others. And you get those devotees, and and uh, they will lie, change their names, uh, change the subject, anything to try to get um, their point of view in, which is taking an unholy path, um, it was something they wouldn't have to do if it was was uh, if they were taking a righteous approach. 
Thank you, Wes, for calling back. I appreciate your perseverance. Damon says, does the Holy Spirit know when Jesus is returning? Uh, Damon, of course, Holy Spirit knows everything. The Holy Spirit is God. Uh, now, I know your reference is Jesus said, no one knows the time of my return uh, except the Father. But remember, uh, the Holy Spirit had not yet been given um, to people in this world. Um, Jesus was walking through this life as a human not dependent upon knowing everything. He, he, he veiled his deity. Philippians 2 is clear about that. Um, but, but of course, the minute Jesus was risen from the dead and in the presence of his Father, he said, don't hold on to me, speaking to Mary Magdalene, don't hold on to me for I've got to go to my Father and your Father. The minute that happened, he knows everything because he's God. And the Holy Spirit, of course, who's always been uh, here, um, the Holy Spirit knows everything. So yes, they know when he's returning. And I hope, Damon, what they know is that he's coming really, really, really soon. <laughs> so thank you for the question. Um, Matthew writes, Who is the man who runs away naked in Mark chapter 14, verse 52? Um, Matthew, the only thing that makes sense in that passage, otherwise it's just unnecessary information. You know, we say TMI, TMI. Um, but but I think most commentators um, and, and uh, theologians uh, are in principle in terms of agreement that this is John Mark, the author of the Gospel of Mark himself. Now we need to remember that Mark's Gospel is Peter's perspective on Jesus' ministry. By the way, that tells us something about Peter. He was very direct. He was short. It's the shortest uh, of the Gospels accounts, Mark is. It's it's uh, all business, and it sort of gives us a little bit of, of uh, information about Peter's character, Peter's nature. Um, but, but Mark, I believe, um, wrote that without inserting his name there. And it's sort of the... The, the fingerprint of the Holy Spirit of validating the authorship of this man Mark, or John Mark, we know him as. And of course, at the time of the writing of this gospel, John Mark would have, have uh, grown and matured in his faith. Um, and uh, I just think this was a, a humble way of him saying, yeah, that was me. Um, um, just making sure that, that the story's not about him but that was who he was. So, um, John Mark, if anybody has any other ideas, uh, there is no validity for them at all. Thank you for the question. Let's go to Jimmy calling on line one. Jimmy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Oh, I asked God to give me a sign before he came on the air, and he gave me a sign about forgiveness. Okay. Because, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, and, and I had to pray and ask God to... Uh, to um, touch my bosses, you know, and, and let her let her know that let Bob know that you know, that he loves her and all that. And anyway, she made false accusations about me today, saying that uh, saying that that I said that I don't need to learn the computer system because I'm a patrol officer. And I said I said I never said that. And she said, "Well, you, you know, she was trying to." And, you know, and I never felt so much stronger from the Holy Spirit when I spoke up to her. I said, excuse me, I never said that. And you're making false accusations against me. Mm -hmm. and, and I was like, you know, I was, I was hurt. I was mostly hurt and, and upset. But because if I said that, I would have admitted it to her, you know. But I didn't say that. So, so she has a way of manipulating and bullying people sometimes. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, and, you know, yeah, Jimmy, there's... I felt like, face, I felt like I mean, what came to my mind is that when David faced Goliath, mm -hmm. and I, I knew that, but I knew that the, the, the mistake of the Holy Spirit was with me when I, when I spoke up. But I wasn't disrespectful and nothing like that. Jimmy, the Holy Spirit's always with you when you're being obedient. You don't have to worry about that. But, you know, I always look at it this way. And, and it, it, you know, we're not told to forgive only those that don't irritate us. Uh, 
Um, but, but God is more pleased when we forgive somebody who is irritating or somebody who is trying to betray us um, or, or accuse us falsely. Uh, God is more pleased when we forgive that person than when we forgive somebody over something smaller. I mean, when we sacrifice for the Lord uh, in, in hard things, God is so pleased. Um, uh, and, and pretty soon, forgiving people becomes pretty easy because your goal then is to please the Lord. And uh, doing the hard thing is always what pleases Him the most. So um, what you did is you protected your witness. You didn't compromise your witness by getting angry. Uh, and um, um, keep praying for her. And as she uh, is the object of your prayers, the Lord will do two things. He will change her heart. Uh, and in the process, um, you're going to find yourself praying for her with a heart that really wants her in heaven. That's the important thing. And if if one of the ways that we can help get her to heaven is to forgive her and pray for her continually, uh, that's a pretty small price to pay compared to the reward that we would get once we get to heaven for for simply forgiving. Jesus, you forgave me. I'm going to forgive her. And the people, especially in the workplace, Jimmy, that are hard to deal with, usually it's because they have no knowledge at all of the Lord, don't know anything about Him. And the truth is they're going to be irritating. They're going to be unfair. Um, but God put you in her life to be His light. If we remember that, she becomes not the enemy of our ministry, but the object of our ministry. Thank you, Jimmy. Appreciate the call very, very much. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Let's go to. Let me see. I've got a call question here from our mobile app uh, from Karen. Um, Pastor Ron, what do you think happened to all of the animals in the ark? Do you think that God put them in hibernation? There would be a lot of work for Noah and his sons to feed and tend the mess that would come with so many animals and meet their food needs for that long period during the flood, uh, a year, she says. I was thinking that God just might have had the animals sleep through the event. You know, Karen, uh, there, there's no way of knowing. There's a lot of speculation that God put them in a hibernative state. Uh, and that would be what, what I would think. But, but remember... Um, um, those animals still needed to be cared for. Uh, I always think about the smell in the ark. Um, but, uh, you know, they were surrounded by salt water. So um, I, I, there's just no way of knowing. And you're right, there would have been a lot of work. Now, um, relative to the first part of your question, what do I think happened to all the animals in the ark? They were let loose. When the, when the ark came to rest on dry ground, uh, they just went loose and they populated the earth. And, and uh, in many cases, they would, uh, they would uh, end up extinct. Um, but, uh, of course, some of those animals that were on that ark are still around with us. So um, I think the animals um, went forth and multiplied. And just like humans went forth and multiplied and... Uh, gave us the, the world that we now live in. But regarding the hibernation question, that's speculation, but I think it's pretty solid speculation. Uh, there's no way to keep animals uh, for that amount of time um, in in uh, a calm sort of mood. So best I can do on that one, nobody knows. Here's a question from our email inbox from Chip. He says, when Jesus was on the cross and the sky turned dark from the sixth hour to the ninth, uh, when do you think the sun came back up or did it at all for the rest of the day? Uh, three hours of darkness equals three days in the tomb, perhaps. Um, Chip, no way to know that, the, the, the last part. Uh, we know that the sky was dark until the, the ninth hour, that's three o'clock in the afternoon. I'm assuming um, um, simply by, by the way I read the text is if the sun came back up but that darkness was a darkness that you could feel and um, it would be terrifying and frightening um, but then people would go back home and, and life went on as normal the people that put Jesus to death they went home uh, that evening uh, you know, feeling relieved like this Jesus problem is, is finally over 
Um, and they just couldn't begin to imagine the trouble that awaited them uh, because, of course, on the third day, uh, Jesus was raised to life. I went looking for him in the tomb, and he wasn't there. Uh, I'm at that place in Luke 23 on Sunday uh, where I'm going to be dealing with Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, um, who came out publicly as believers after watching Jesus die. Um, and then, you know, the women would, would go home and prepare, just waiting for the first opportunity at the close of the Sabbath to come back to the tomb very early the next morning. So um, I think the sun came back up and probably was for the remainder of the day until it set naturally. I think uh, that was the case. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Jonathan says, Pastor Ron, I know you are pre-mill. Uh, that means that the return of Jesus is going to come before the millennium. I know you are pre-mill, but how do you reconcile that with Jesus saying the kingdom has already come? Um, Jonathan, I, I made references in an earlier question. Uh, um, Jesus brought the kingdom with him, and he said the kingdom of God is within you. So he's not establishing his kingdom where he's ruling and reigning. And and I think I know where you're coming from. Jesus is not ruling in this world yet. Paul calls the devil the little g god of this world or the ruler of this world. And and, and until Jesus deals with him when he comes back in judgment, um, the, the enemy's the one who's controlling things. Now remember, the enemy is a servant of God. So God is in control, but these are things that he knows are going to happen. And he's using um, his enemy and all of the enemies to accomplish his perfect will on this on this earth. Um, but Jesus said his kingdom is within you. And that's just another manifestation of the kingdom. And that's a, a prediction, a prophecy of, of the, the indwelling Holy Spirit. Uh, who's going to come and live in the lives of the believers. Paul Christ calls it Christ in us, the hope of glory. But but certainly, Jonathan, all you have to do is look around, and you're going to see that, that God is not ruling and reigning now. And that kingdom is something that we're going to look for. And the kingdom, remember Jesus' message was Jewish. We forget that. Now, there's great application for us, obviously, and great value. But Jesus came to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He didn't come for Gentiles. And everything that we read in red is directed to Jews. And so what he's saying is the kingdom of God is going to be within you. But when it comes... It will come, the kingdom will come in judgment first, and, and Israel will be judged. Jews will be judged individually. But he's going to establish his kingdom on the throne of David. And the, the, the specific reference is that kingdom where Jesus sits on the throne of David. So, Jonathan, being post mill or you're more likely a mill, all millennial, meaning there is no millennium. Uh, or that we're already in the millennium, um, uh, all you have to do is look around. That doesn't make sense because there's just too much that hasn't been fulfilled yet. Um, Robbie, this will probably be the last question we get to today. He says, have you done a series on why the rapture will be before the Great Tribulation? I believe that, but I'm looking for some debate material. Uh, Robbie, if you've listened to this program in length of time, I, I encourage people, don't debate. There's no value in debating. Uh, so you don't need that. Just be convinced of what you believe and share it. Declare it. Um, I, I don't do series uh, in my Bible studies. Uh, however, Robbie, you can go to our website, calvaryessay.com, um, and uh, go to teachings and in the book of revelation chapter four the first study i always do when i get to chapter four is a study on the rapture it is very detailed um, um i talk about types and pictures in the old testament i talk about the promises of god in the new testament i talk about the character and the nature of god and why whatever doctrine we settle on has to coincide with or line up with 
the, the character and the nature of God is revealed in our scripture. And I think it's a very, very thorough teaching. So it's um, the chapter four. The very first study is always a detailed study about uh, the, the tribulation and the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. I talk briefly about what the other uh, rapture theories are but dismiss them very quickly and go into detail about about why the rapture of the church has to be before um, the Great Tribulation begins. And it's it's as clear as it can be, unless somebody just wants to argue, and that's why I don't debate with people. I just say, here's, here's the study, you can look at it. Um, I've also got notes, Robbie. On, on on the website, so you can look at my notes, my commentary. Um, but uh, don't don't debate with people. Just declare what the Bible reveals as the truth. Good question. Thank you very very much. Well, we're about out of time today. I think we're well. There's the music. Um, Paula will be live in studio with us tomorrow. Uh, the date, the edition of the program. Ladies, that's your day for needing any encouragement or have questions. Uh, call Paula tomorrow on the program. I'll be teaching in Genesis chapter 1, the first five verses tonight. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow on AM 630 The Word. See you at 4 o'clock. Bye-bye. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. I need the word to stand on.